Okay, we are we continue in First Peter. We will bring chapter three to a close today. And remember, Peter is writing to persecuted Christians in the dispersion. And he is reminding them of who they are. They are the elect of God. And he is telling them that you're going to have some hard days, you're going to face some persecution. But he's also giving them comfort that God is in control that nothing truly bad is going to happen to them. They may lose their lives, but you don't fear that. You fear those who can send body and soul to hell. But God loves them. They're His elect. They are persecuted. And they are required to still live holy and godly lives and to be good witnesses to those who are persecuting them. Last week, um, we got to the idea of the of Jesus dying for us on the cross. He suffered one time for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, to reconcile us to God, to bring us to God, putting to death, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. So that brings us up to date here, and. Um, we will start with uh, we'll start with our pastor this morning, and we'll go down the line here. And if you'll read for us First Peter three verses eighteen through twenty-two. Read from the ESV: For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Okay, who's ready to interpret this passage? <laughs> okay. <clears throat> All right. Um, in the ESV, and I think probably other translations that use paragraph formats, the paragraph goes from verse 18 through 22. And last week we covered verse 18, showing that Jesus' crucifixion is a one-time event never to be repeated. It's substitutionary and it is reconciling. And so today we come to chapter 3 verse 19. And some commentators consider this the hardest passage in the New Testament to interpret. And uh, a couple of them, Martin Luther, Greg Monson, make this statement. And I want to read Mark Luther's statement on this for you this morning to get us started. I want to. Um, 
and then I'm going to give you the three major interpretations for this. I don't think I have that statement from Martin Luther with me today. I thought I did, but I don't. Okay. So, I am going to read out of this book, The Message of 1 Peter by Edmund Clowney, on what he says about interpreting this verse. Okay. He said, well, Martin Luther, what, he says what Martin Luther writes in his commentary. He, Martin Luther says, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. Study of the passage may have, study of the passage may have progressed from Luther's day. But Luther definitely makes a statement that he can't interpret it with any confidence at all. Okay, now we move to the three major interpretations. First, alright, this is the first. And all of these interpretations have various modifications. First is that Jesus descended into hell and preached to the spirits of those who perished in the flood in the time of Noah. So far, not too bad. But, he goes on to say, some who hold this view also think that what Jesus proclaimed to the dead was the gospel, offering them a further opportunity to repent. So a second chance salvation is what we're talking about there. And of course, once you die, uh, you're, there's no chance to repent. Once you die, you can't repent. So there's no sense in holding to that view. Others would have Christ preaching to the righteous dead, proclaiming their release from the prison where they awaited his coming. Still others would understand his preaching to be the heralding of the doom of the wicked dead. So that's the first interpretation. It has several variables. And a lot of people that hold to this, um, even still in various, various ways. And the second interpretation is presented by Augustine, St. Augustine. And he... Um, Augustine held that Christ's preaching was done in the Spirit through Noah. Peter says that it was the Spirit of Christ who preached through the Old Testament prophets, which he did. Uh, we learned that in chapter 1, verse 11. Christ's preaching through Noah would be a case in point. Those to whom Noah preached were not in prison literally, but they could be described as in prison spiritually. Or it might be said that those to whom Noah once preached are now spirits in prison. That's a fairly commonly held view. Now it doesn't mention this, but some <coughs> Roman Catholics say this proves purgatory. But I don't think it comes anywhere near giving any, any evidence of purgatory. All right, now a third interpretation would understand spirits in prison 
to refer to fallen angels rather than human beings. Jesus proclaims to them his victory and their doom. This is seen by some as taking place after his resurrection. As he ascends into heaven, Jesus confronts the principalities and powers, showing his victory and power over them. Okay. And then the next thing that Clowney says is none of these explanations is free of difficulty. So we have to be very careful when we interpret this. I'm going to show you Greg Bonson's view and it has difficulties and I'm going to read what Matthew Henry says about this. I don't normally use Matthew Henry very much but I think he did a pretty good job on that but it wasn't actually Matthew Henry because he died while he was writing the commentary I believe in Acts. So those after Acts would be Matthew Henry's disciples or his students or somebody else that would hold Matthew Henry in high regard. But they did a good job on that, I do believe. All right, let's go down here. We're going right straight down the road. All right, let's look at Jude verse 6. And I think these are on your notes. Jude 6. And then Genesis 6, 1 through 8. For you, Mike. Okay. Yeah. And then for you, Jill, Job 1, 6 and 2, 1. And Dana Colossians 2, 15. You might want to all turn to these passages. Jude is the book right before Revelation. So we're going to look at the sixth verse of Jude. Let's get the context. <clears throat> now, verse six is good. Yeah, once uh, verse six. Okay. Jude one six. Yeah. And the angels who do not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Alright, he specifically says they're angels. Word could also be translated as messengers. Who did not stay within their own position or authority, but left their proper dwelling. So angels leaving their proper dwelling. Okay. And in his argument, Bonson next goes to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and the daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God 
came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was, was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Okay, this should be through verse 8. Oh. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In this passage we see that in the world that then was, you remember we have the world that now is since the flood, and before the flood, the world that now was, we see that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they married them. And that is when the Lord, it seems like that was like the last straw for the Lord. That's it. They're gone. All right, then let's, and these sons of God um, Monson and a lot of others take as being angels. And let's look over at Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Alright, so there we see the sons of God there appear to be angels. And then in 2.1... Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among, among them to present himself before the Lord. So Satan and his dominions, and his minions rather, and they appear to be angels. So, it's what we have here is angels marrying uh, human women, and like I said, you know, none of these are without problems. Let's have Colossians 2.15 read for us. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. All right. So those that interpret this way, like Greg Monson, in your notes here, it says Jesus was making proclamations, or proclamation, to these fallen angels their doom is sure. So Jesus was dead, buried, and after his resurrection, he went, and these spirits that are now in prison, he was making a proclamation to them that he was the victor, and their doom is sure. All right, that is one way of interpreting this. Another way I thought was pretty good, of course, it has its problems too. I read from, from Matthew Henry, and like somebody said this morning, the print is small, <laughs> so I'll see what I can do. Okay, so the apostle passes from the example of Christ to that of the old world and sets before the Jews to whom he wrote the different events of those who believed and obeyed Christ preaching by Noah. 
from those that continued disobedient and unbelieving, intimidating to the Jews that they were under like sentence. Um, God would not wait much longer upon them. They had now an offer of mercy. Those that accepted of it should be saved, but those who rejected Christ and the gospel should be as certainly destroyed as ever the disobedient in the times of Noah were. So we have disobedient people now and disobedient people then. God dealt with them in his own time, but he dealt with them. It says, for the explication of this, we may notice the preacher, Christ Jesus, who has interested himself in the affairs of the church and of the world ever since he was first promised to Adam in Genesis 3.15. He went not only by a local motion, but by special operation, as God is frequently said to move. He went and preached by his spirit striving with them and inspiring and enabling Enoch and Noah to plead with them and preach righteousness to them, as in Second Peter 2, 5. The hearers, um, because they were, he's got a period out of place here, because they were dead and disembodied when the apostle speaks to them, therefore he properly calls them spirits now in prison. Not that they were in prison when Christ preached to them, as the vulgar Latin translation, vulgar doesn't mean vulgar as we think, it's common, common Latin translation, and the popish expositors pretend. The sin of these people, they were disobedient, they were rebellious, unpersuadable, and unbelieving, as the word signifies. This their sin is aggravated from the patience and long-suffering of God which once waited upon them for 120 years altogether. While Noah was preparing the ark, and by that as well as his preaching, giving them fair warning of what was coming upon them. The event of all, their bodies were drowned and their spirits cast into hell, which is called a prison. But Noah and his family who believed and were obedient were saved by the ark. All right, I hope you all understood that. I had to read it several times to make a whole lot of sense out of it. But I'm just presenting you a couple of views on this. The um, big thing that Peter is trying to persuade them of is that just as Noah was suffering in his day, God came and brought judgment at his own timing. And he is going to do that with you. You are persecuted. God knows what's going on. God is being patient with these sinners, just as he was for 120 years in Noah's day. But their day is coming. That is the basic message he's trying to get across to them. I'll stop here if anybody has any questions or another view they would want to present or one of these views that I've shown that you think is absolutely insane? Um, so this word now in verse 19, you said that's only in the Vulgate? 
the Latin ball gate? Because um, it got in italics in my NAB. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't in the original Greek. It's supplied. Right. And so you do have to supply that so, for that view. Seems to me like you can rule out these number one options immediately. But the other two, um, the thing I have problems with in this first, are we at verse 20? Let me, let me get over there. I think we're doing uh, both together. Yeah, 19, 19, and, 20 19 and 20. Together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, there were eight persons saved, uh, including Noah. But it seems like they're talking about the same people, or different people were disobedient because they're implying that the other ones that were disobedient weren't angels, but they were persons. And so would that be maybe um, the fallen angels in human form? That's why we read these other verses? Yeah. Yeah. I just, you know, what I've read, yeah, what I've read is about the extent of what I can tell you. Okay, Joshua. I think that Second <clears throat> Peter two five. All right, let's turn to that because I was going to have everybody turn to that too. I, I think that really helps to, to clench that he's talking about the Spirit of Christ preaching through Noah mm -hmm. to the old world. So if you look here in Second Peter two five, and I'll read it. <clears throat> I'll read four two as well. But Go through verse 6. Yeah. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning condemned them with an, over, with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly. That last phrase in the ESV, I think, clears that up. It says, making them an example yeah. of what is going to happen to the ungodly. But, uh, yeah. Um, it, there's a connection. Peter's making a connection there between the sufferings of the Christians in his present day and for us today. <clears throat> that Noah, right, and Christ preaching through Noah, I think, is clinched in this. Mm -hmm. So that it's it's not Christ preaching to the saints in purgatory. It's not Christ preaching to the angels of the old world. It's Noah as he's constructing the ark over 120 years, striving and proclaiming, "Hey, look to everybody who." came around and look, God's going to destroy you all. Right. You all need to repent. That's, right. that's his condition. Repent and obey. Right. So you would say he's not talking about angels no. at all? No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's, there's what a bothers yeah. me is they call them eight persons, including Noah, were saved. So I guess angels are personal, but... <clears throat> The only, anyway, the one that really doesn't make sense is that second chance stuff. Yeah. That was, that was a, um, 
in context, it's, it appears he's talking about apologetics early on there. And so I'm, I'm agreeing with them that it's, we're going to face opposition from people. And so few are going to, might listen, but that doesn't mean that we should uh, back off. Uh, we should stand firm in the face of opposition. And God will vindicate us. Yeah, that's right. And evidently, Noah was the only one that preached. <laughs> well, yeah, all these wicked people, and here's little old Noah, you know, preaching. He, he had opposition, we do too. Anybody have anything else they want to say on this passage? <clears throat> well, in 21, I know you aren't 21 yet. My, the first word there and minus says corresponding to that. So there's a connection between 1920 and the rest of it. Yeah. And baptism. Yeah. Yeah. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Yeah, we'll get to that in just a minute. Um, the I want to try to present this to you to show <clears throat> the pressure Noah was under. Yeah, I, I, it took me a second. My Greek, my logos isn't working right now on my phone, so I couldn't. I had to go somewhere else for the Greek. But where is it? The ESV translated as person. What um, verse are you talking about now? What? What verse are you talking about? 20. 20. Verse 20. Um, it, it's actually the, the Greek word psyche. Souls. Spirit. Souls, breath. Yeah. Okay. So that, that wouldn't be a reference to angels, but it would be a reference to people who have breath, soul. Okay. I think some translations do it as soul. King James is one. Yeah. That's why I was like person, soul. Okay, thank you. Um, let me uh, run this by you. This would be really encouraging when you're facing um, ridicule by unbelievers. We have here, if you want to turn back to Genesis chapter 1. I, I was just kind of musing over this passage and thinking about poor old Noah during those 120 years. Genesis 1-7 should be on page 1 in your Bible. It's, uh, Moses tells us, and God made the expanse or firmament and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. So we have waters that are separated, upper and lower. Okay. In chapter 2 of Genesis, verses 5 and 6, 
When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. So we have water above the earth, we have water down here, we have no rain. And nowhere in Scripture does it say rain started before the flood. Alright, let's look at 7 4. Genesis 7, verse 4. Four through six. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. So it started raining, and it rained for forty days. And there's no indication that it ever rained upon the earth before then. And then in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 7, And after seven days the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were opened. And the rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So we have these little springs that had watered plants. All of a sudden, the fountains of the great deep were opened. So we have the water coming from above, and we have the waters coming from below to cause this flood. Noah was building this ark, and I believe it hadn't even rained upon the earth. And he had all these hecklers saying, what in the world are you doing? And so here we have righteous Noah preaching to them. And Noah being a prophet probably relayed this information to them. He says, you see these, these waters up here? No, evidently were visible. They're going to come down. You see these springs coming up from the earth, that water's going to come up. And you are going to die if you don't repent. Now, of course they thought he was crazy. Without the power of the Holy Spirit changing their hearts, they would think he was crazy. But for 120 years, God was long-suffering with them, and then he brought that flood upon the earth. He knows how to deal with the ungodly. He still knows how to deal with the ungodly. And that's what Peter's telling them. God still knows how to deal with the ungodly. Okay, anything else on that? All right, well, I'll leave that to your private study. I've done the best I can do. The comments were all helpful. <clears throat> Now we get to the verses on baptism. All right. <clears throat> Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, to this flood, now saves you. 
Wow, Roman Catholics are right, aren't they? <laughs> All of that time we've been saying that their doctrine is wrong. Peter says it plainly. Baptism saves us. Okay. But that's not the end of it. He says, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right, so here in your notes, verse 21 shows us that this is a type of baptism. Baptism is the antitype. This is a type of baptism pointing to the same thing that our of our sacrament of baptism. These two things point to our Holy Spirit baptism. The sacrament of the bread and wine points to our Holy Spirit baptism. And so does the flood in Noah's time. Um, so they were saved through water. And Peter points out clearly here that it is not the sacrament that saves us. He says, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's not the sacrament of baptism. Okay, anybody have anything to add to that? A little humor. The, uh, the dunked ones weren't the saved ones. Okay. In the flood. I didn't hear what you said. The dunked ones weren't the saved ones in the flood. Yeah. yeah. That's right. The righteous ones were sprinkled from above. <coughs> And the wicked ones were immersed in water. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Same thing that happened with Pharaoh and his armies. We won't the bring that wicked to the Baptist church we're going to. Today. Were immersed <laughs> for Christmas. The righteous are always sprinkled. We saw that in the first two verses of First Peter. The righteous are sprinkled. The wicked are immersed. They will eternally be immersed in the lake of fire. They were immersed in the flood, immersed in the Red Sea, immersed in Sodom and Gomorrah, in fire and brimstone. So that's why I think it is so horrendous. And thank you for bringing that up. So horrendous to see a Christian be immersed. The wicked are immersed. Okay. Now, the last verse says, Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. All right, so Jesus Christ has conquered death and hell. He's in heaven as king over all creation. And if you look back at Psalm 2, Verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. 
Do you think Jesus asked that of the Father? You bet he did. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, king over all creation. The ends of the earth are his possession. He's gone into heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, watching over his people. And even though, Christians, you are being persecuted, Jesus is Lord of all. Okay, that's all I have for today. Anybody have anything else to add? All right, Val, you'll close us in prayer today. Holy Father and our God, we thank you for this time of studying your word. We're thankful for the preparation that went into this lesson. Thank you for all those who labored to make this day, the preparation for this day, possible.